This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we explore theatrical spectacle. The New York Times called my guest a multimedia troupe of infinite jest with an imagination to match. They collaborate with an ensemble of 10 to 20 artists to create post-industrial live performances with original music design and staging that attacks and celebrates the idiosyncrasies of our world. Coming up are two creative souls that strive to be whimsical, accessible, and transformative with each new work. Stay tuned for the creators of Squonk, composer Jackie Dempsey, and artist Steve O'Hearn. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Thank you, Pat. Thanks, Pat. I just had the pleasure of seeing the Squonk Troop in Omaha on the fly. I was coming back from my son's graduation, and the timing was impeccable. I got there just as you were starting. I was able to see the whole set, and then I jumped on a plane and headed back to Austin. (laughs) Let me try to describe what I saw, and then we'll talk about how you develop all of this. You were doing your show hand-to-hand, and Squonk is this big outdoor festival vibe with music and you had these giant inflatable hands that were oversized that were rigged like a sailing ship where your team members and audience members were able to pull up and down on the ropes, which made the fingers articulate. And it was super funny and whimsical when the thumbs came detached and there was a big thumb war between the guitarists that were wearing them on their back. Pat, those are opposable thumbs. Oh, my apologies. Yes. (laughs) A comic like you. But when they come unattached, then they they can't hitchhike. They can't do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Once you strip a a hand of an opposable thumb, you're just a cat. That's right. (laughs) I first saw you when you were Squonk Opera. This was traveling around to festivals and performing arts centers. So tell me a little bit about how you two came together as partners to build this big brand. Listen, Pat, this was 30 years ago. I I was an unhappy commercial designer. So this is a long time ago. And Jackie had just gotten out of grad school for music composition or something very esoteric and foolish (laughs) like that. Anyway, so with the usual position you rise to with a master's degree, she was serving hamburgers at the local burger joint. All true. (laughs) I ordered a dinner and I asked her for some more ketchup, obviously. I could tell she had stars in her eyes. And and she looked at me and she said, Steve, I I write music and I play piano. (laughs) And I really want to do something joyous and wonderful for audiences all over the world. And I said, Jackie, I'm your man. Let's, (laughs) Let's make this happen. What a partnership. Is that how you remember it, Jackie? Some parts of that are true, yeah, but I enjoy the story, so I just let him tell it. <laughs> sure, sure. Jackie, Jackie agreed to bring all the to-go ketchups on tour. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. It's the myth. <laughs> no, but you do seem to have different roles. I mean, there's so much art in what you do, and there's so much whimsy and humor and also music and theatricality. I'm attracted to, to the idea that you use so many elements of the arts to make the experience. And also it seems like you're very conscious that you want the audience to be a participant in your art. Yeah, those are both true. And oddly, I think Pat, compared to you, 
The one art form we don't really use is writing and verbal communication, which you're a master at it. But we just wanted to use the dynamics of music, the abstract dynamics of music and visuals to drive an audience. And we absolutely want to get them involved and feel like they were part of it. And I think the reason we avoid words, not just that we aren't good at them, is that it lets the audience bring their own story to a show. They see something, they hear things, and they end up having to co-create their experience with us. Yeah, I also imagine that because you work internationally, it doesn't take anything away from that transfer. Anywhere you land, you're dealing with some level of humanity and where you don't really have to have words. Yeah, it's a huge advantage for uh, non-English speaking audiences. So that's always served as well, wherever we are in the U.S. or otherwise. And when you begin to discuss a new work, and I know that you've done a number of them, what leads that? First of all, concept, you're thinking really on a kind of large-scale festival mindset, it feels like. Thematically, when you go to a new project, where does that start on the drawing board? Well, I would say it starts with Steve. He's He comes up with the idea, the concept for the show, and then we start to flesh it out. He starts to build a model that, that we look at and see where it could go. It takes quite a while. I mean, say maybe a year or so for us to, to complete the production. So while the visual is happening, I'm working on music and we're bringing those together in kind of a collaging technique. Actually, someone else was just asking me about, well, do you just write the music to go with whatever st- whatever idea is in the scene? And I know that's not how it works. But that means a lot of the music that I write gets cut. We have a bunch of ideas. We see what works with the show. We go back and forth. Sometimes it's something that's contradictory. You wouldn't expect that this piece of music would go with this visual. So it's really a lot of trial and error. Philip Glass once said about his music with all those extravagant theatrical productions he did that lasted hours, wasn't meant to illustrate the visuals or the verbiage happening on stage, that it was meant to go around it, either above it or below it. Yeah, or alongside it. Yeah, so there was not not really a primary art form, which makes uh, it really fun for me and Steve that it's the, the visual and the musical we feel are equal. Yeah, and, and it's very fluid. What I saw was really fun because I can't tell what's leading what. Yeah, that's yeah. good. The musical elements, what's being happening on the keyboard is going along and suddenly the fingers are articulating as if they're playing the piano, yeah. which is a visual. And even watching your tech crew where they're pulling the ropes, it's a little bit of choreographed dance in some ways because it's deconstructing. Visually, we could see behind the scenes really from the front at that point. Yeah, that's exactly right. We Yeah, we wanted to make them visible because it is, I mean, I guess one of the premises of Squonk is it's interesting to watch people do things. Could be anything. It could be throwing a pot or cooking a dinner. And God mm-hmm. knows reality TV shows us that. But if people are accomplishing a task, especially if it's an unusual task like manipulating a 25-foot hand or playing a keyboard, it can be wonderful and engrossing to watch. So we try to expose that it's completely transparent. There's no hidden trickery. It's the opposite of a magic show. There were just a bunch of people making stuff happen. And we do work really hard on the transitions, how we get from this stuff happening to that stuff happening, and what we have to do to accommodate and kind of sweep the audience along. Because we do think of our shows as a series of scenes. They start out as kind of staccato images, storyboards. And then we figure how to sweep the choreography and the music and use that to bring the audience along. 
And in the same way that we collage figuring out which music goes with which scene, we also, uh, there's a lot of debate as to when things happen within the show. So we know that we want to create a lot of peaks and valleys. We want to take the audience on a, on a ride or a journey. We usually know what we're going to do at the end and we know what we're going to do at the beginning. What happens in the middle uh, takes us quite a while to figure out the flow of everything. Yeah. Well, I want to have you take me back because there are several shows I want to discuss that you have had and some of them you still tour, but I want you to take me back 25, 30 years to the Pittsburgh junkyard where sort of one <laughs> of those early shows began where you were choreographing uh, cranes and earth movers. Was that one of the bigger things that you did to start out? That was the biggest thing we had done to that point. Yeah, Steve. And and again, it took us outside. So one of the premises that make us different than most performing groups is our shows are meant to be outside and and can only happen outside and are best seen outside. And most most festivals have a whole bunch of essentially stage acts popped up on truck stages doing music or whatever, and they aren't really embracing being out there. So the junkyard show was great for us because you could smell the stink of rust and oil and metal <laughs> and people brought lawn chairs and six packs and, and coolers of food. And it was kind of an event and it was great fun to choreograph the machines. And it was a joyous kind of community celebration that was very unlike the protocols that drive going to a theater where you sit and you're supposed to clap at the right times and you're not supposed to yell at the audience. So it kind of embraced some Pittsburgh instincts for boisterous outdoor stuff, you know, spectator sports <laughs> and fireworks. And Jackie still cries at parades. So that kind of thing <laughs> was the inspiration. Yeah, I've been to Pittsburgh a few times, and I'll say it's one of the few places that people put fries on their salad. Yeah. But I enjoyed my visits there. I have to say, it's a very artistic city. And when I was a kid, the Steelers were from there and the sky was pitch black. And when you come into Pittsburgh now and you come over that hill from the airport and you see the three rivers and you see all the bridges, it's, it's paradise in some ways. Mm -hmm. And there are so many uh, artistic and theatrical endeavors going on there. Uh, do you find there are specific things that the two of you, where you go for inspiration or places that you're drawn to while you're there? I have to say, I think it's very rich in the arts because we have a really strong philanthropy community. The Heinzes and the Mellons and all, a lot of, there were a lot of uh, Gilded Age tycoons that arose here in the early part of the last century. And it ended up putting a lot of money into the arts now. The money they took from a lot of people ended up being free-floating and is now distributed with great kind of vision by groups like Heinz. That makes a lot of sense to me, which is funny. I hadn't thought of that. And also, obviously, the Heinz ties us back to the ketchup packets. So. <laughs> That's right. It all comes together. Yeah. The other side of that is, in addition to having access to funding, which we're very grateful for, it's also a very affordable city. Yes. So, And we discovered that, especially when we lived in New York for a while, which is not affordable right. at all, especially now, even worse. But in Pittsburgh, you can um, have a life in the arts and you can own a home. Mm. You can have a yard. You can have a, a, a pretty normal life and be working in the arts. And for touring, it's perfect because we can drive eight hours in many different directions and, and hit a lot of towns. Yeah, that's a good uh, location for that. How do you manage when you do something internationally? You have all this equipment and these people. And what are the logistics of taking something overseas when you're working with such a big equipment? 
It's pretty tough. That's why uh, most of our touring happens with the truck in the continental U.S. and Canada. But when we go overseas, we need a cargo container, which, of course, post 9-11 has, uh, has gotten more and more difficult, more and more stringent. Because, I mean, I remember when we, I think it's when we went to China, we had a series of organ pipes that were part of the set stashed in boxes, and, and they thought they were missiles. It's just, right. uh, you can't describe one thing. And, of course, you have to do a carne that lists everything in your cargo container. Our stuff is things like, oh, giant hands and a purple crab <laughs> and uh, ridiculous things that don't exist anywhere else. And because it's going on a ship, it takes a really long time. So we can't tour whatever that show is for uh, almost two months because it takes three weeks for it to get there. Then we're performing there three weeks to get back home. So it is quite a to-do. Yeah. And I learned something myself when I did corporate events in the Bahamas, Bermuda, places where I sent equipment or illusions. And not only does that manifest have to match, of what you put in there. Even if you have something disposable, you have to take it back because they think you dropped something off in quotes. Uh, And I remember that the team in in Bermuda said, Oh, we'll be sure it weighs the same going back. Like I was like, Oh, I don't like, I don't want to know what I'm hearing. (laughs) I I think, I think I remember the opposite in, uh, in uh, England, when we went to Edinburgh we had to import everything, including the set, and pay taxes on it, and then export it back to the U.S. after. Eventually, I think we dumped one of our sets in Belgium somewhere. We don't know where it is now. It, yeah, there are big tax issues. It's very complicated. Well, you do tour with a fairly big group. So how many people in the troupe? There are 10 of us when we go on the road, generally. So there are five people in the band, four people who work all the stuff in the show, and then a sound person. So it is a pretty big team. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an advantage to being a solo artist. I it's lonely <laughs> and it makes for very sad cast parties to be a one man show, but I can hop right. a plane with a carpet bag and be somewhere. Yeah. 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 We have a wonderful magical, it is an ensemble. We try to keep people as long as we can, but it is a source of much trauma when someone drops out uh, because every one of them is trained to run the show. So we have to set up to do a rehearsal outside, which is uh, very burdensome financially and effort-wise. Well, it's also got a sort of a repertory feel because I talked to one of your uh, folks that was running some rigging, and she says that she and someone else are in the upcoming show that you're developing where they're going to be featured as singers. So that was kind of rewarding to hear that take care of this, this part on this show, but you're something else in another show. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. We had this woman you're talking to is probably Kelsey or or Treasure. Those are the two women who are going to be doing that in the new show. And they came on board to be the handlers with the purple hands. And they added so much pizzazz to the show. And we were noticing that, of course, they're great performers. And so we thought working on the new show, we should really highlight that in in many different ways. So they'll be doing some dancing and some singing along with doing some tech work as well. But everyone in the band has to do some tech things during the show as well. But it'll be fun to explore that. When are you expected to debut it or put it on stage? The first performances are going to happen in Pittsburgh over Labor Day weekend. So just a few months from now. And then we're taking it for the big national premiere to an event called Art Prize, which happens in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So now I know we're going to Colorado Springs after that and hopefully some other cities in between. So we're still working on booking those. And that show's called Brew Ha Ha. Yes. 
And Steve, do you want to describe, I, you just emailed me the visuals, but I think I wouldn't do it the kind of justice that you could <laughs> tell. Well, no, no. I mean, one thing I see that I'm super intrigued by is these horns looks like big bell horns that are uh, run by bellows that our crew members and audience members are pulling down. But give me an overview of what, what they would be seeing scenically, and then we'll talk about what else happens in the show. We thought one of the big successes of hand-to-hand -hand with these 25-foot hands was bringing the audience up to control them by pulling the ropes after kind of showing them how they work. We decided to extrapolate that and take it into the actual music itself, the music making, the playing of an instrument. So the set is essentially one giant instrument. It's a foghorn organ driven by bellows. <laughs> so we call it the squonkordion, but we're all playing on top of it and then and then we have a series of scissor lifts that we're building right now that lift up behind it, up getting them up about 16 feet in the air with tuba bells on them. And it's always interesting trying to figure out how to make this stuff happen because you got pneumatics, you got things like where do you buy some tuba bells? And I think it'll be really exciting where it's, it's cranking along right now with all the kind of practical struggles and the combining of disciplines, what Jackie's doing in music and what, what we're struggling with in build and, and how do we figure out how to take this to that? It's hard to keep an audience's attention with a live show in this mm -hmm. in this age. So we have a series of things happening, each of which is kind of bigger than the last. But the the peak of the show, about two thirds of the way in, will be the audience coming up and trying to play music with us through an entire song and whatever chaos uh, ensues. You don't know every show. Once you put this yeah. in the audience's hands. It's a cacophony. It could be an ice cream truck wreck in terms yeah. of the sound. But that is fun because I'm sure it keeps it diverse. Like every show is like surfing a big wave. The first time we did hand-to-hand, -hand, when we had that section where the audience comes up to pull on the ropes, I just remember how joyful that was because we had been leading up and rehearsing out, okay, this is the part where the audience comes up. And you just don't have any idea how that's going to feel. You hope that they'll want to do it, that they'll enjoy doing it. But I remember the first few times we did it, I just couldn't believe all the, the joy on their faces. People were so excited to come up and be a part of it and to see it happen, something they've been watching. And they're like, oh, I can do that too, which is one of the ideas behind what we do anyway, that anyone can do this with effort and, and time. And that audience participation bit is just uh, a real thrill for everybody involved. And it's not just the people coming up. They leave behind their friends and family who for the first time put down their corn dogs and say, wow, I really want to watch this because they're looking at their mm. kids jumping around doing things or their friends. And it's also a great kind of unifier doing an activity like that. Of course, audience participation, like in a magic show or in a theater, can feel super awkward and how you get, how do you get people involved? So a lot of it's also kind of training and bringing them to that point where they feel free enough to do that. And yeah. interestingly, COVID affected the way we did that scene because when we first did it, I used to go out into the audience and choose people and they didn't know what they were being chosen for. So it was a little scary. People would be like, oh, no, not me. This right. kind of thing that Steve's talking about. But when COVID came, we realized we couldn't really walk right up to people and, you know, ask them to come. So I make an announcement now from the stage that says, hey, everybody, we're going to need your help. And what's great is then everybody just comes running down to the front. So more people get involved because they're just excited to be a part of it. Yeah. One thing I'll credit you guys for is that because the scenic view and the colorfulness and uh, the sound of the music is all original and unique, 
it is kind of like a foreign circus has come to town. And <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? There's something about oh, something like wicked that. this way come where people <laughs> are, they're attracted to it by the audio and by the visual. And there's enough curiosity and whimsy in it that they're going to stick around. You're going to have to earn their they're sticking around for a long time, but that's something I learned street performing much younger in life, which was it's in that situation, the street performer gets paid after the show. They don't buy a ticket right. until it's done. And uh-huh. so you owe that bill to the audience. You owe that, get that circle big enough. And then literally when you do your pitch at that moment, they could turn around and walk away. So they have to have loved every step of it to say, Oh, I'm going to now, go in my pocket and buy a ticket, essentially. Yeah, yeah, and that's that thing about coming upon something and, and being drawn in. You know, even though Steve was saying how, we, you know, we did start with a lot of festival shows, but we did, we performed in theaters for many years. But really there was a turning point in, about a decade ago when we performed a show we did called Go Road Show that we performed on the back of a flatbed truck. This was coming back to doing outdoor shows again. And we did it in Baltimore and... We just couldn't believe how amazing it felt to bring just all kinds of people in. It just didn't matter. They didn't have to have money to buy a ticket. They didn't have to, as Steve said, you don't have to know the protocol, how to act, when to clap, just be quiet. Just to see everybody having fun together, we thought, this is what we should be doing. We we don't belong in the theater. It's just not, it doesn't. That's what people say about you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of critics have said that very coolly. But what's great is they don't have to know who Squonk is. They don't have to know what it is that we're doing. No one has to explain it to them ahead of time to get them to buy a ticket. They just come and they're like, what is this? What is going on here? Like you said about street performing or busking, a lot of it is about maintaining surprise, too. They don't want to hear what they listen to on FM radio in a street performance. They they want to be surprised. Can you play a ukulele uh, upside down or things like that? So because we exist kind of outside genre, people are surprised at what it is, and there's no there's no explanation. Well, that also helps me understand why the Squonk brand, it, because it's an unusual word. And, you know, I think about Mum and Chants and other people that do weird, unusual stuff. It's It's hard to describe. It's hard to give it a definition but not so much if you're not inviting them to come in through a threshold to discover it. So bagpipers, you'll come running if they're outside <laughs> the field, but if they're playing in the next room, you run the other way, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. Right. <laughs> yeah. I'm asked repeatedly when I'm playing bagpipes, do I know how to play far, far away? Now that's <laughs> not a tune title. <laughs> right. The not most the requested tune on Good bagpipes. One. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there was another show of yours called Cycle Sonic that sort of celebrated bicycles and seemed like big oversized bicycles. And they're just mechanically intriguing to come (laughs) upon something bigger than life. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they're two-story bicycles. So they're essentially giant tricycles that have a stage on top of them. And each stage has a musician on top of it. And each musician has his own sound system with a battery at the bottom of the bike. So they're they're about 400 pounds and they're cycled around in their own choreography with each other. So we started with them all together. So it looks like a single stage. But then you see people manually pushing them out. I think a lot of our shows are about the capacity to do things, kind of feeling empowered to make stuff happen. So it was a real workout, though, figuring out the engineering on those. They're a real struggle to get them lightweight and 
everything else. In that show, Steve was uh, honoring my love of parades that he mentioned earlier. Yeah. So we yeah. not only did we do the show, but we also participated in a lot of different parades in cities, riding the bikes down the road. And another instance of not really realizing the impact that would have on audience members, when we were rehearsing Cyclosonic, you know, we'd be riding around in circles and doing all these formations. Then when we did the show, it was like, wow, we're not only just riding around, but look how close we're getting to the audience. Yeah. So people were so excited. They're they're watching us from far away. And then all of a sudden, a bike's coming right toward them and then turning. And so just being up that close and seeing the expressions on their faces, which is another surprise for us as performers, really fun. Yeah. Right. And as you describe the mechanics, I also realize, Steve, when you design this or you think of it, it's not a one-off, right? It's not something where... Oh, if we get through this show tonight, we can just throw this thing in the clunker. Ooh. You have to know these things, the development of them, they have to withstand touring. They have to be able to be safe for an audience member to grab onto that. This stuff is the development of this is, uh, you know, the engineering probably takes quite a bit to get to what yeah. you consider to be the final thing that you can tour with. It takes a lot because some of these shows are on the road for five years and they're outside. So they're getting yeah. rained on. And, uh, and all kinds of things happen to them, and they contain all these technical systems. So every show we do, there's new discoveries to be made. Like the giant hands were made in Holland by the only company that could do what we needed to do them. That does, uh, uh, And it used a new kind of engineering to make the knuckles bend where we wanted them to bend. And with those spikes, we had to use uh, the lightweight chromalloy tubing, which requires different welding and has to be. And, of course, we aren't really engineers. So... Most of what we figure out is trial and error. So after the drummer falls off his, his stage a couple of times, we say, oh, we better put in another bracket there. <laughs> the other thing that I, I have no involvement in that I don't know how Steve does it. He works with Todd, who's our technical director. It all has to fit in the truck, too. That's the other right. side of touring. Yeah. And what amazes me is every show we do, it exactly fits. There's hardly any room at the end of the truck. So I, I have no idea how they figure that out. Is it just luck, Steve? It's it, Well, it's a general sense. It's like budgets. You get a general sense, you make up some numbers, and you hope that it works. And then you you throw out a couple things that don't fit. But yeah, we come to within two inches of our truck for every show, two inches of the door. The art of designing something and then being able to make it fit into a Chinese puzzle and fit back into the box yeah. every time is a, a real art, logistical art. It's yeah. not like the mystery of the obituaries that I always used to look and say, why do people die in alphabetical order? Uh, every day? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about commissioned work because that is also something that you guys are very good at. And I think probably the listener doesn't know anything about, which is now we're talking about these big dreams or this concept and it has to be paid for somehow, Right. So does that require grant writing on your part or on a uh, presenter's part or what? No, no, the presenters don't really help us make the shows. They book them after the fact. They aren't. Um, but actually, but some of them, I will say, who have stood behind us for many years do book us before the show is actually made. Oh, yeah. So like, like Art Prize yeah. in Grand Rapids where we're going to premiere the new show. Yeah. So they book the show. But we're very DIY with the, with everything else. So Jackie does the accounting and manages the personnel and I do the grant writing. And we kind of figured out how to do it ourselves. So we've gotten 10 NEAs for shows over the past decade or two. Um, and we're pretty good at getting that. And it requires that you think ahead and come up with a verbal pitch for a show because you can't use – you don't generally use – any kind of illustrations like I sent you, you can show samples of your past work to, to mm. 
say that you have ambition and scale and and professionalism, but you're, the pitch is always verbal. So, and it's not necessarily the same as the show ends up, but that doesn't matter. Your goal is simply to get money. So right. it's a, just a kind of sales, really, but um, maybe with more poetry and uh, and uh, passion. But when you approach the National Endowment of the Arts, is it an in-person presentation or nowadays it can be done by Zoom or? No, it's always written. There's not one oh, grantor. It's written. written. Okay. We probably have a dozen different funders in different places, you know, nationally, locally, uh, statewide. And there are always written and or work samples. You never get a chance to pitch directly. You do have to have a vision and then you have to be a good storyteller. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 And you have to do it really far in advance. I mean, we start fundraising probably almost a year before we start building anything. Some of them, you don't even know if you're getting the money, but you're just going on the hope that you will. You just start start working and building. Yeah. Wow. Well, now you mentioned uh, spending some time in New York. I wonder what it was like to have to, the experience, uh, I'm wondering what it was like, the experience of transferring onto Broadway for a period of time. It was hellish. <laughs> it was the worst couple of months of my life. Um, oh, jeez. Oh, good. And, Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, we, had, we had had an off-Broadway run at, at a little avant-garde theater called PS122 that I don't even know if it still exists, but it did kind of obscure, strange, interesting works. And we got placed there after playing a, a theater tech conference where we substituted for a Foxtrot band. But anyway, some commercial producers approached us. We went off Broadway and there we got rave reviews from Ben Brantley and the theater critics in New York, which served us very well over the summer that we did it there, uh, which was which was hot. And because it was a little avant-garde theater, there was no budget for anything. And and uh, it was a but that was kind of joyous in a way and fun for us and interesting. But then because commercial producers were involved they thought, well, maybe this thing can make a lot of money and really upset the, the status quo of Broadway. And actually, they didn't think that at first, Jackie, did they? It was that they couldn't find an off-Broadway house to put us in. Right. Well, I will say, I'll go back a, just a little bit when we were at the off-Broadway theater, is that they, they were working all summer, the producers were working all summer to get the critics to come. And nobody would come because nobody <laughs> knew who we were. And they're like, squonk, what is that? They're from Pittsburgh. And finally, they got Ben Brantley from the New York Times to come, not until August. And we were only there for June, July, and August. He came in early August. Then we got the rave review. And then everything changed. So there were there was a line around the block. Everybody wanted to come see the show. And it's just like in the movies. You know, the record labels are calling. David Letterman's yeah. show is calling. Everybody <laughs> wants to be your best right. friend. Yeah. Right. And so it was really exciting. I still remember, of course, this is when you had to wait for the newspaper to come out to see what the review was. And I still remember we waited. We waited to find out when it was coming out in the middle of the night. We took a taxi down to the New York Times building <laughs> so nice. we could get the actual newspaper and read it. And then I swear, like by eight o'clock the next morning, that's what everybody was calling. So it was really exciting. And then once we, because we were only renting PS 122, we had to find another space once summer was over and the producers did want to put us in another off-Broadway theater because that's sort of the flavor yeah. of our show. Steve and I toured many spaces downtown. There were no spaces that could fit our show that was open at the right time. And so the Helen Hayes theater, the show there, they found out was going to close. It's the smallest Broadway theater. It's a great little theater. Very it's intimate. Great. So many well, hits have come out of there. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we thought, well, the producers thought, let's try it. So we got in line with eight or nine other groups. We did our presentation with the model. And really, I think it was based on the review from the New York Times. And uh, so they took us. So it was a complete fluke that we ended up on Broadway. We never meant to go there. We don't even like Broadway musicals. It's probably <laughs> one of the musical styles I really don't like. We had never so wanted was, to be on Broadway. Was, was yeah, one so, so there well, we which were. Which is why people say about you, you don't belong in the theater. Exactly. Well, and they told us very clearly that we don't belong on Broadway. (laughs) Yeah, so we were there. We were right across the street from uh, Chicago. We were at the end end of the block from Phantom of the Opera. It was a really weird place for us to be. And audiences either loved it or hated it. Some people were like, where are all the dancers? Why, you know, the cast is too small. Why aren't they telling me a story? But other people were saying, this is so great, something new and different on Broadway. But it really came down to it only mattered, unfortunately, what the same guy, Ben Bradley from the New York Times, what he had to say. And all the weeks leading up to our opening on Broadway, he had been writing articles in the New York Times about it's too bad no one's doing anything different on Broadway. Everybody's doing a rehash or you know, doing a movie from the 70s. And we thought, OK, this guy already likes us. He's looking for something new. This is going to be so great. And then we had our big opening, big party. We're riding limos around Times Square. Again, waiting for the newspaper to come out. This is a second review from the same reviewer. Yeah, same yeah. reviewer, like six months later with a million dollars pumped into the production. So because we're on Broadway and he comes out and basically says, location, location, location. This show belongs downtown. And then pff, it oh. was just... It was a matter of weeks and we oh closed. So God, that's so brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we can laugh because we yeah. know that it doesn't define you. But when you do step into a, a, a genre, a location, a, something where the expectations are different, they get to define what mm-hmm. they welcome yeah. with open arms and what they don't. Yeah. yeah. But what's what's interesting now, I think, is it's so different because people don't just look to the New York Times People look to audience members. What are they saying on Instagram and oh, yeah, Facebook? It's, all social it's, not, media. it's not as much about what one person thinks of your production, which I think is great in a lot of ways. We have a friend, Peggy Sutton, who made a documentary about this whole experience. It's called Squonkumentary that we taken from all our days in Pittsburgh up through Broadway and the, the stress and the struggle that we tried to keep that show open despite that review. Oh, and it great. Was, so Just that is awesome. available for people to watch. No, I don't mean great. Steve, I know, <laughs> I know oh, you're thinking, you oh, I get true. to watch surgery be done on these people. No, <laughs> I, I'm just saying I love when moments in time are captured, highlights, lowlights, the, the blood, sweat, and tears, because I think for any kind of theatrical endeavor, and I would take this back further in the development of these new shows for you, Steve, is the audience doesn't get to see the whole ride. They get to see sort of the polished finish bicycle under the tree on Christmas. But the amount that goes on in the rehearsal halls, that goes in the design thing, that deal, talking to the costumer, finding out this thing doesn't fit right, that to me is the real exciting part of creating original content, is solving the problems, delivering something. And that's also why it's so wow at the very moment in the show when it happens is people can't can't believe that the fingers of this big inflatable hand are animating to the music and whatever. Well, that's not an accident. It's, it's, a, it's a lot of accidents that added up. Yeah. It's a right. big showcase. Yeah. Right. It's also like you're saying, it's a lot of trauma and failure 
I mean, there's constant failures as we try to make things happen. And you probably know this from doing magic and 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 telling jokes. You throw out 90, 90 jokes to get to the 10 that work, that really work. And the audience doesn't see any of that. I think that's that's kind of the great thrill of being an artist and and the responsibility is to throw out the shit and not force the audience to, to look at it because they don't have time or interest in seeing all the shit. But in fact, for you, that was the fun part, doing the nine bad jokes till you get to the one good one, doing the giant foot and then the giant ankle and then the giant elbow. None of it fucking worked. But then you got to the giant hands and that was just right. <laughs> Anybody in any kind of visual arts knows that you're layering things, that yeah. things are growing and becoming something in, in the writing world. People go, Oh, that's such a great story. Well, that came, that story came from a longer essay that was exploration of a favorite moment in time. And then it gets reduced. You yeah. boil it down and you yeah. shape it and you carve it. And then you, you say, okay, here's where the heart of the artichoke is. This is what I'm going to serve to the patron. It's about editing. Yeah. It's editing out. It's the same with the music. So a lot of people think, oh, that's great. You guys just all got together in a room and poof, there were the songs. And it just doesn't work that way. It takes months and months of, of editing, figuring out this is not going to work. This will work. You play this, you play that, try this. It's a lot of time and effort. And I imagine, Jackie, as a composer, I imagine that you see this piece of mechanics has to travel. So this part of the song has to be a little bit longer to cover this. You're working in tandem. For yeah. sure. Working the transitions and figuring out which takes focus when, yeah. The style of the music had to change too once we we started doing exclusively outdoors is because you want to keep people's attention because they can just walk away. They didn't buy a ticket and have a commitment to sit there for two hours. So the music tends to be more upbeat and more festive than in theater shows. We had more, you know, we could have slower songs and more variety that way. So that's uh, an interesting challenge for me. What's the longest sit down that your company has done somewhere probably broadway or when off broadway because that was three months broadway yeah. was two months we were in china for a month we were in edinburgh for a month a couple theaters here and there yeah. yeah do you like that where you can not have to reset everything up every day <laughs> that's nice i mean i i don't know what i don't know what steve thinks but i really loved being in scotland because it felt we had a flat that we all shared, which had its <laughs> advantages and disadvantages, but it was really nice to just live in a beautiful city that I had never been to before. And I had my grocery store, I had my bank I went to, and I, you know, I had the show every day at three o'clock and uh, we could do what we wanted the rest of the time. And so I really enjoyed settling into that experience. New York was a different experience for me and Steve is there were a lot of things I liked about it. And Steve, I don't know if he liked anything about it. Oh, I, yeah, I like things about New York. China's another story. That was a long, a long month for me. But there's a real, it is hard to tell. I think for me, an optimal amount of time in an interesting city is like a week or so. Because after that, it just feels like work. But on the other hand, you don't want to go in and do a six hour load in every other day and right. do one show and then load out for another six hours. So so there's kind of a middle ground that works and not every city is beautiful Edinburgh. So right. Right. That's that right. also matters. Well, so ideally for you, it's a combination that you have an event and maybe a residency for the week and you're able to interact yeah. in another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as we get older too, we, we like to come home, you know, it's, there's the comfort of home. And 
I love this lifestyle where we get to go out for three to five, six, seven days, explore a new place, meet new people, but then we get to come home. And it's a, it's a, you know, it's a lot of back and forth. I think we get the benefits of both of those lifestyles. Kind of like the romance of living like a cowboy when we go in and set up at a new show. Yeah. Because you don't know what the situation will be quite. You try to do advanced planning, but we're playing outside in middle of different conditions. So there's kind of an excitement and thrill in getting it to work at different sites and meeting new people. And I've always thought the best place to see it or the best way to see a new place is by working there, not by going as a tourist. So working there with local people on local things and asking them where to get the best food around is is great fun. What's the most unusual thing that's happened in terms of an outdoor event where the show must go on? Is it rain? Is it wind? Is it hail? It's all of them. I can tell you an exciting about each of them. We played in 100 degrees in Baltimore one year, and, and our guitarist actually uh, collapsed at one point. It was unbelievable. Three shows a day, 100 degrees, high humidity. So however they measure heat, so they tell whether or not your sweat actually cools you or heats you. Anyway, it was, it was just awful. But of course, experientially, maybe it's not a very good story. It's not a good story, is it? And, and then the worst thing that ever happened was on a podcast when my story ran out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. I was listening. <laughs> no, and, and then we've had wind and rain. We've played in muck and mire. We've left devastating mud in, in Oswego one year. And we had to drive through one year. They had eight feet of snow in one day from the lake effect. The same day we were driving up there, Jackie and I. For a residency, yeah. And China was tough weather-wise. I mean, there every day it was in the high 90s with 90% humidity. So, and we were performing right near the water. So that, that was probably the sweatiest run we'd ever done. Have you ever performed on the water? Have you ever had a stage, a floating stage or anything of that nature? <laughs> we, we thought of that and we're looking at doing it in Pittsburgh because we're, of course, defined by three rivers. But we started doing research on it and the... All the burden of red tape from the rules from the Coast Guard, which actually guards the rivers here, were too difficult to for us to manage. Uh, too much paperwork. See, wasn't there one show where the wind was when Astorama, the wind was so bad it oh, broke yeah. the frame and you had to drive yeah. home in between shows we to were, fix it? We were premiering it for the University of Maryland and we had built a giant movie screen. We crashed UFOs and denied any knowledge of them. And the show itself had a, had a radio telescope that we projected on. But anyway, this thing was like 600 square feet. And in the wind, 600 square feet can add up to tons of lateral pressure going one way or another. Right. So, so we got a high wind day, um, the day we premiered, and the whole thing bent. And I did uh, stick a bunch in the back of my car, drive home and rebend them. And drive back and then put them back in the set <laughs> for the next day. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine there must be a surprise around every corner, depending on what. Yeah. Uh, you are looking at a weather app uh, as you arrive every second. Oh, yeah. yeah. Probably three different apps on everybody's different phones. And yeah. A squonk, which we have not discussed, is a mythical creature from the hemlock forest in Western Pennsylvania, but it's also an extraordinary, amazing art group that works with music and staging. You guys have been described so many with so many really great words, surreal and a poetic, flamboyant, dreamy, crackpot modernist. 
Debussy meets Godzilla. You know, it's really funny to hear people try to describe you, but I want to be sure that the audience sees some of the visuals because they can't from this audio podcast. So I'm going to send them to squonk.org. Mm-hmm. And it's it's onomatopoeia, as Steve says, squonk as it sounds, S-Q-U-O-N-K. And it's just been a real pleasure to learn a little bit about you guys. I'm looking forward to brouhaha in the fall. You guys are awesome. Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you, Pat. Great, Pat. We really appreciate you covering us. Thanks for joining us today. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative with sound editing lovingly provided by Delilah Lovejoy. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp with additional production support and sanity provided by Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun because dot com is just two dot common and dot fun is so much more fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty. You're called a creative.